This episode of Fruit Bowl is sponsored in part by our Patreon community. Each month, 33 members contribute a total of $190 to help provide financial support for website maintenance, production, travel, and promotion. Benefits include advanced access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive access to video outtakes from each interview that are not available to the general public. Thanks to Cecil for becoming our latest patron, and also thanks to Ted for increasing their monthly donation amount. Learn more at fruitballpodcast.com slash donate. What do you consider kink? For me, I own a couple of harnesses and I enjoy wearing jock straps. But clothing alone doesn't make me a kinkster. Straight people might think that all queer people are kinky because we have sex outside of the traditional, missionary, baby-making kind. I believe that among the many benefits of being queer, besides, you know, having better taste and dance skills than everyone else, is that we are free to define sex however we want, and we're free to switch up and explore different kinds of sex as we evolve. Kink is a common interest among Fruit Bowl interviewees, and one thing I've noticed is that experienced kinksters have a passion for educating themselves. Syra, who, by the way, uses all the pronouns, has immersed herself in kink from the very early stages of their sexual explorations. Books, online forums, classes, and conferences are opportunities not only for gaining deep understanding, but also places for him to meet and play with like-minded partners. Often, she would take on the role of educator to friends, classmates, and even random strangers who have questions about kink. In this episode, you'll notice my voice pop up more often. I wanted to take advantage of Cyrus' knowledge and skill at describing his kinks and how they discovered them, and ask the questions many of us might have when it comes to kink play. I hope you'll take a similar, curious, and investigative approach if you ever decide to dive into any kind of kink, so that you and your partners can play safe, and, above all else, have a fun fucking time. And he pinned me down, and he was like, what if I fucked you? What if I just did it? And I was like, what if you did? And he was like, for real? And I was like, pull it out. I bet you won't. And we literally shit-talked into fucking. (laughs) So that was my first time. I got on top and was having a great fucking time. (laughs) Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm Syra. I'm 30 years old, and I graduated high school in 2009. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. It's a suburb about 30 minutes south of Philadelphia. This episode was recorded in November of 2021, right here in Seattle. I grew up in the suburban part of Wilmington, for sure. There is a city, Wilmington itself, which I loved. Definitely one of those places that's... uh, that calls people call themselves socially liberal but fiscally conservative, which I grew up learning that meant that people will be nice to my face, but will do everything in their power to institutionally 
still fuck people over. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of northern places in America are, are like that. The, the social norms tell you that, you know, you should smile in people's faces in a different way than in the south. If somebody has a bigotry or prejudice against you, they'll just stay away from you. I was an only child. My parents were both kind of in, in college while I was a kid, so the communities around them were other students or other academics that they were learning from. So they were both studying at University of Delaware, and I think my mom did her postdoc at UPenn. And I think they both, yeah, they both got along with me better than each other for a lot of the time. So I spent a lot of time with each of them, more than we all kind of did a lot of things as a family. It was very hetero, looking back, actually, yeah. Yeah, there was no adult in my immediate vicinity that was openly queer. My mother was a model in the 70s, and so she had had a lot of queer people around her at a different point in her life, um, which I think was to my benefit growing up, but nobody when I was a kid was around. It's hard to track when I first found out about the idea of sex because my mom was very sex positive. She was the one kind of in control of what media I was allowed to consume. She was much quicker to kind of hide my eyes from a lot of violence than she was to try and make me leave the room for a sex scene if it was like a consensual one. So I think by the time I was three or four, she had also had the basic like people have sex and they make babies conversation with me out of her being like, I'm a biologist, like I'm not going to tell my child about Cabbage Patches. <laughs> so <laughs> I think by the time I was a toddler, I understood. And, I, and it was one of the many times I had to be told not to tell other children things I knew. <laughs> so yeah, by, by the time I was a toddler, I understood that, that sex was a thing that adults did. I think, you know, around that age that kids are asking about babies, and I think I probably asked, or it came up on TV, and she just kind of told me that, Sometimes adults have sex, and sometimes babies come from that. It seemed really obvious to her. But again, she was in school for neurobiology specifically, but was thinking about the body in such a clinical way. And then from there, whenever I was curious about bodies, she would like buy me uh, like child-level like biology like books and coloring books and things like that. So it just was another system of the body. She taught me about the respiratory system. She taught me about the circulatory system. She taught me about the reproductive system. Um, and it never really got sexualized until I was in puberty and having my own sexual orientation thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. Middle school was definitely the boys and girls separate, right, body talks. And speaking of my mom, this is a point where she also got in trouble with other parents for giving them some of these kind of books that I, she had gotten from me that were about like the care and keeping of your body and puberty. And but she got one of those books for her, one of my classmates and was very swiftly ostracized by the, all the other adults. And that's when I think I started to realize the stigma around sex and the stigma around bodies is watching my mom get social repercussions for just trying to offer information to another one of my friends. She came to have a more, tried to have a more advanced conversation with me at a point where I had already kind of looked up sex ed on my own online. I had already kind of found porn that I liked and I had already kind of started to understand the complexity of my, my orientation. And so she did a lot of just earnest, messy parental things like just kind of 
coming up to me once in middle school and demanding to know if I knew, if I could define a blowjob for her. <laughs> she was like, so have you heard of this thing, uh, blowjobs? Blow what, what do you think, what do you think that is? And I was like, we're not doing this. <laughs> I was like, we all know, I think was my response. <laughs> And then high school, it was a joke. There were five schools in that building. It was very overcrowded. Uh, but the top floor was a math and science charter school that I originally tested into. And I went because I wanted to take kind of arts classes on the side was the goal. But the school was really rough for me in a lot of ways. There were not a lot of black students. The teachers were really racist. Up to and including my favorite class, which was English there, uh, the teacher decided that I couldn't have known the words I knew, and thus all my papers must be plagiarized and tried to like get me kicked out of school. I was there for freshman and sophomore year, and there was not sex ed. I don't know if it was going to come later on, but it hadn't happened. That's already too late. So I was ready to leave. <laughs> and so I switched schools, and it was such a relief because I, I knew more people. I was already friends with a lot of the kids there because I was searching for other queer people. There were actually a large contingency of black queer artists at that school. I'm so grateful. <laughs> I don't think I could have done all four years at that first high school. Like I said, it was an absolute joke. We had a drunk gym teacher um, in the most stereotypical scenario who laughed at us a lot of the times when people were uncomfortable up to including purposefully assigning a child with a lisp to do, like, <laughs> a presentation on syphilis. You know, he was a cruel, strange man. <laughs> we all sat there just trying to hold it together as this poor boy with his tiny Edgar Allan Poe mustache kept saying syphilis. That was our sex ed class in high school, yeah. I have no clue what he was supposed to be teaching. <laughs> Lord knows what Mr. Gardner was supposed to be teaching us. Um, because we just kind of ran around in that class. People kind of just did whatever they wanted. It was basically a study hall. <laughs> and if he liked you, you could pass by doing nothing. And if he didn't like you, you might have to write a paper or two. And it was, yeah, it was just a joke either way. Internet age, right? Young queer kids. A lot of us, yeah, we're already either experimenting, dating, fucking looking up porn, like we had all, a lot of us had already started figuring things out by the time they were trying to talk to us about STIs or talk to us about, I don't even know if they talked about protection. <laughs> I came out very much by accident, every, almost every time. Uh, I've had to do it deliberately sometimes too. But the first time when I was 11, it was very much that I got into a conversation with another kid who was, you know, being slanderous about bisexuals, as was, you know, very in vogue in the early 2000s. And I fought her because I was like 11, and that's the kind of thing that people get pushed on playgrounds for, I guess. <laughs> Child me decided. And I got back to my parents, and my mom was pretty sure that I was doing it for attention, which I have never understood what that meant, why I wanted to fight strangers uh, for attention. It's not me. But... My dad, my dad had a lot of demons around homosexuality that he never really exercised and never really knew how to deal with. So he would go between kind of ignoring and openly saying like homophobic things to me and being shocked when I was hurt. My mom eventually figured out how to come to comfort and understanding with me being queer. 
she's a scientist in her heart, so she collects data, she tries to understand things, and a lot of things that might shock her upset her at first. I appreciate that she will educate herself and try and come to comfort with it in some way. I came out to my cousins, I think, when I was around 15 or 16, and I was doing it because socially that's the thing we're told you have to do. You have to go tell everyone once you have the language for it. And they were chill. I was always kind of the alternative odd duck, so I don't think anyone was shocked. But I definitely have stopped being someone who comes out as readily, so I don't know if they have any idea about how things have evolved. You know, 15-year-old me only knew about my sexual orientation. I didn't really know shit about my gender yet. So at least in the sense that no one is openly hostile in my family about me looking like non-normative to them. They're pretty accepting about that. And how would you define your queer identity? Uh, I'm a non-binary trans person, and I am a bisexual, pansexual person when it comes to my orientation and my attraction. Yeah, I'm definitely a polyamorous kinkster. I definitely stepped into kink really focused on the BDSM club spaces, uh, being spaces that are all about bondage, dominance and submission, uh, sadomasochism, um, which seeing those things as a set of skills that you spend your whole life kind of building and working on. I stumbled upon a website called pink.com. It's not the singers. A lot of long fake nails and big fake boobs and lesbian sex. And I was so both curious and excited and feeling like there was something else I was looking for. I know now looking back that that was really lesbian sex through a very like hetero man's lens. But I think that was the first time that I was like, oh, the TV always shows me this one kind of sex when I'm watching romance movies or whatever I was allowed to watch at the time. But there are other, <laughs> there are other permutations of people's bodies <laughs> to mush together. And I say that, but I think I had a conception that it was there because even my childhood uh, like toy interaction playtime, the X-Men were all very queer. <laughs> the Barbies only dated the Barbies and the X-Men did whatever they wanted. So I think I was already kind of looking for that when I was young and, and imagining relationships. So yeah, after classic porn kind of videos and clips and, and that kind of exploration of what I liked, it became written smut and written erotica. So there was fanfiction.net, which I think still exists, but I don't use anymore. There are a couple others that I can't remember, but there were some original fiction sites and fanfiction sites and probably live journals. And from there, I really got, like, got it affirmed that I was into kink. And that's where I think that light bulb went off for me. And from there, I got really interested in kink conventions and clubs and places where there are play-focused events and classes and all that stuff. And so I spent kind of my later teens looking up all the information about safety and in kink play and just trying to, like, get myself ready to go be 18 and get to, like, go to these places and be able to get in. That was kind of my, my later teen self-education. Sex has always fascinated me, and I always 
It's like the puritanism of of the modern America just didn't permeate for me or something because I just didn't internalize it in the same way that a lot of my peers did. I was definitely the source of information for a lot of people to kind of come to and talk about either something they felt curious about or some kind of queer birthing they were feeling in themselves or things like that. I had a lot of those conversations with friends. I think because I was always the person loudly being like, oh, I'm sorry, you were confused about something we heard in class about sex that was wrong? Great, let's talk about it. Uh, I've looked it up for two days now. Last time I was at a party, this was a while back in New York, I was standing waiting for a drink and someone next to me idly was like, is it transphobic to have a size kink? And I slid in there like, well, size kink doesn't actually have much to do with genitals after a point. Like, hands are much bigger than most genitals, no matter what. And then when we start talking about toys, and then me and this person had a 10-minute conversation about, like, the fetish of size and penetration and within queerness... <laughs> just the conversations I get excited to have with people in public. Um, so I think that's why I, I, I would go look up something for my friends. If they were too like nervous in, in the library space or online, they were like, I don't want anyone to know. And I would just be like, what, what do you need? humped a lot of things as my like early masturbation process and like body exploration. It was just like, what can I straddle? And and what would be some of the examples of things you would hump? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the corner of the side of the bed, various pillows. I had a childhood stuffed animal that was still around that was like a full-size dog. <laughs> that poor thing. <laughs> got, got ridden quite a bit. Um... <laughs> Definitely tried the shower head thing. It was just kind of anything. It was always about pleasure for me. I think I I was almost exclusively close friends with boys when I was young. So the concept of like jerking off was something that everyone around me was talking about. Uh, I was part of these like timing their jerk off contests. So like the concept of this was already sexual to me. So I... I can't track how young I was doing it because by the time I was aware it was sexual, it was already like something I kind of thought to to do for my own pleasure as like an urge I was having. So yeah, pleasure was always part of it for me. It was like I was calling myself nasty in my head, but it was because I liked it. <laughs> I was like being a little bit kind of self-degradation about it, but I, it would never stop me from doing it. It was always like part of what made the chill go up my spine, you know? I'm an AFAB person, as in I was assigned female at birth, but it's not something I identify with at this point. Because I think at least I had the concept as, like, an AFAB person that, like, it was somehow grosser for me. Like, it was expected of the boys around me, but it was somehow grosser for me to, like, have this urge and give in to it. Even though we were all coursing with the same hormones, you know, the same, like, flush of endorphins and new body parts. I think it's one of the things that was, like, I wasn't aware that I wasn't giving in to some of the gender expectations of the moment. It's so specifically suppressed for AFAB children, the idea that you're supposed to have any sexual urges. Like, it, you're so much more shameful for having them, whereas, like, a young boy masturbating into socks is a joke that everyone can, like, talk about. 
But somehow, because there's no evidence in the same way, if you're not a squirter from a young age, but somebody with a cunt, there's a perception that you don't have an interest in touching yourself. So outside of the X-Men, uh, my first crushes, I would say, are Lucy Lawless and Kevin Sorbo, being the actors that played Xena and Hercules, respectively, on TV. <laughs> I feel like those two shows came on, like, a little later. I think it was, like, seven or eight, because they... Xena was always a little sexier than Hercules, and Hercules used to always come on first. So I feel like they were a little bit later. It would be, like, after dinner, my parents were watching football. I go watch Xena and Hercules. <laughs> but they came on back-to-back, and I would just sit there like just wrapped watching them whenever I could and that was my first moment of realizing that maybe I was having an attraction style that wasn't normative and that's just from watching so many romance movies when I was younger and so at eight or nine seeing Kevin Sorbo and Lucy Lawless and being like Kevin Sorbo hot Lucy Lawless hotter um (laughs) I was like maybe that's not how everyone is reacting to this But I'm nine, and so this thought is just going to wash away now. Um, But that was my first awareness of being, like, pansexual, bisexual. I can remember the first time that I kind of accident... I say accidentally, but... I knew that I was telling people that I had a crush on a, on a at the time, another girl. It was just some girl named Chris. And it wasn't even like a deep-seated crush. It was just that, you know, sitting around in a circle, everyone's saying who they like, and I was, you have to say somebody or everyone's going to needle you for 20 minutes. <laughs> so I said a name of somebody I thought was cute. And it became this, like, shockwave that followed me for weeks in, like, seventh grade. People went and told her. I, like, got ostracized out of a friend group for it. This person who had kind of been my my new friend didn't want to talk to me anymore. It was suddenly like weirded out by me and saw me as kind of predatory. And so that always stuck with me of being like, oh, I have to be cognizant of what, who I will name this to because socially li- liberal place means that maybe behind the scenes people are not talking as socially liberal as they are in public. I think it's because there is such a deep feeling about coming out Right. And there's such a deep feeling societally about there being this like deep, hard boundary between what is gay and what is straight. And that's the hardest part about being a bisexual or pansexual person is because that boundary is impermeable to so many people. So for me to not have made some big announcement that I am a lesbian and then to name somebody for them to be like, you're a female, you named a female, but you didn't tell anybody that you're gay Everyone's just like, what is happening? (laughs) It's like resetting their whole world. And I've had it happen with coworkers too, even off, I kind of joked about it earlier, off saying like, oh, my partner. And someone turning to me and being like, you're a lesbian? (laughs) And it's like, well, no and yes. Like, (laughs) um, being a non-binary person, like I am gay for a lot of things (laughs) because my gender is also a lot of things. So it's like, the masculinity I see in others, like, that's what I feel, like, sexual and gay for. And the femininity I see in others, I feel, like, sexual and gay for. 
just looking back at like the kind of naivete of the other kids around me and how I ended up being the informer and the helper so often when people were trying to explore themselves. But in a place that's even conservative in, in any kind of way, there's such a fear of being the other. Like you can allow the other to be present, but you don't want to be too close to them. And so I think that was part of it. Even at my very gay high school, people were able to pull that with me among, among girls, among groups of girls. There was still this fear and this feeling of like, uh, almost the inverse of how it is in straight world in my high school, where it's like, it's fun and chill for boys to be gay, but there were just way less out lesbians and way less out queer women, which led to so many, so many love triangles and uh, bad polyamory <laughs> among the lot of us that were out in high school. But it's just because, there, yeah, there just weren't as many. Something about it was harder for the girls to be out. I didn't realize I was having sex the first time I had sex. Well, this was pre-high school. I was 13 or 12 or 13. And it was with two female friends at the time. Uh, one of them was on the phone with some boy she liked and made some joke about us having a threesome. And for some reason, I can't remember to this day why or how, that led to me and the other girl like fake moaning and like rolling around on the floor. And the fake moaning became real humping um, and real kissing and we definitely both got off, like, as the web would call it now, tribbing, <laughs> like thigh humping. Uh, and then the other, my third friend who had been on the phone got off the phone and, like, clearly felt, like, left out. And so we kind of kept going. I started having these experiences with other feminine people, whether they identified as male or female, where we would like have these sexual exploratory moments and then they would be full of like shame and denial and I would be like, that was a great time. Wait, what? What? <laughs> so that was my first sexual experience was doing that with these people, being like, these are my friends. We had a fun time. And then being like, we will never speak of this again. The first time that I was like, this is my first time <laughs> was with a bisexual dude at this summer theater I was working at. Uh, he was a carpenter. I was a costumer. I was 16. Yeah, I was 16. So that was my first penetrative sex, I would say. We started hooking up, me and this dude, because we were both sadomasochists. <laughs> Being someone who flirts a lot in like a very bully fashion, a lot of shit talking, a lot of poking at people. He was doing it, I was doing it, and for some reason we were all hanging out watching a movie and he decided to reach over and just like grip the back of my neck. Now, I don't know if he had read me, right, or if he was just trying to fuck with me, but I moaned and he heard me and this started us having a relationship of I will find you somewhere, throw you into a wall and just like attack you with my teeth. There may or may not be actual lip-to-lip -lip kissing. It might just be body slamming, growling, and biting one another. I think he was having a good time because I don't think... I think he would do that to people and people would just be startled and he had not met someone who would do it back. We broke many things in the dorm that I was living in. <laughs> Slammed into many walls where things were uh, once hung, no longer. And so it got to the point where that just kept escalating, where clothes would come off more and more when we would be doing that. And it was so much just about the 
impact play and the rough body play and the the biting, which are all things I couldn't have defined why, but they are like central parts of my kinks and why that the whole sexual relationship could really just start that way for me. And I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> and so one time in our like taunting and shit talking, he pinned me down and he was like, what if I fucked you? What if I just did it? And I was like, what if you did? And he was like, for real? And I was like, pull it out, I bet you won't. And we literally shit-talked into fucking. <laughs> so that was my first time. I got on top uh, and was like, and was having a great fucking time. Like, definitely a switch in that way. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, we kept fucking around for a while, but in the, like, bad polyamory of youth, we didn't really define what we were. Right, so it got to a point that I found out he was sleeping with other people, and I felt like, well, why wouldn't you have told me that? Like, why wouldn't that have come up that you're like having these games with other people? And I broke it off because I was like, I don't, I'm 16, I don't know how to handle this. I had been polyamorous actually really actively up to that point. All of almost all my relationships in high school were non-monogamous, just because I was like, I don't think I can do that monogamy thing. I was like, I don't think that's for me. <laughs> I kind of always knew that. So I think I was mostly shocked that someone who was older than me hadn't had that self-awareness. I wasn't really concerned about whether or not I was, I was fitting in, and I feel really lucky about that. As, as an adolescent, I think things would have been really a lot more difficult for me if I had been preoccupied with any kind of normative rules. I always was just really aware that they weren't going to apply to me. The first kind of femme-identified partner I had was an incredibly polyamorous relationship. My high school girlfriend often had boyfriends, and I often had other, like, partners. And we would always just introduce each other to whoever our partners were and being like, hi, this is also this other person, and they're going to be around, and I hope y'all can be friends, was how she introduced me to many dudes that I don't think would have been polyamorous otherwise. Um... Again, she and I had a lot of kink first. Kink really, like, centers and runs my attractions. <laughs> but, yeah, she and I would do a lot of, like, you know, sneaky high school and public kind of stuff where we'd be in a stairwell or trying to, like, get each other off as fast as we could between classes or shit like that. She and I had many, like, multiple-person scenarios, and that was the interesting thing about being in a high school where everyone was trying to figure out their queerness and their relationship structure ideologies and shit like that. We would end up in, like, grouping, sexual groupings, like, having group sex at that young age. I'd say I was 15 or 16 the first time. I was just in a room full of people and everyone's, like, doing something. And I may be just interacting with this person, but when I look up, there's people fucking over there and there's people fucking over there. And that happened after school one day. <laughs> like it's someone's home. No, at school. Like, in the drama room at school, we had time between the show starting and school ending. And as the kids that were both behind the scenes and on stage for the show, no one questioned us just loitering around. We knew we had a couple of hours. And at first, we were just like, that one couple can't stop making out. Oh, now they're making out. Oh, now someone's putting on music. And someone's turning off the lights in here. And it just kind of evolved. <laughs> In the way only a room full of horny teenagers can just decide it's fucking time uh, at four in the afternoon. <laughs> Not until Folsom did I have such a joyous day.
Well, the first person I said I love you to was a high school boyfriend. That was after the summer I lost my virginity in the traditional sense. <laughs> so my high school boyfriend, who was a juggalo who went by zip tie at the time. It's a juggalo. Oh, okay. So if you are somebody who follows and is a huge fan of the Insane Clown Posse, you may identify as a juggalo or a juggalette. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was the first person I was really in love with. And he said it first. I was definitely like a, a bizarre feminine person that like broke all these norms in his understanding of the world. And, but... Him identifying with ICP was part of him trying to find others who wanted to, like, be bizarre in a specific way in our suburban area, right? And so here I was. At the time, I already, I think, had blue and purple hair a lot of the time and had very distinct style, kind of knew where, what I wanted to do and be an artist. So, yeah, he was really he was really sweet and really, like, enamored, and I really, like, loved him. Yeah. We kind of tried the first, my first attempt at a really functional, like, three-person relationship with a juggalette at the time. Uh, in terms of, like, inviting someone into a relationship I was already in and trying to all agree upon boundaries and how to function as, like, a three-person unit. Um, and that was, to me, was so idyllic and so beautiful. So that was a big deal in terms of first for my, like, negotiating relationships. I realized when I was younger, because I was that person seeking out all these kind of non-normative things that felt really central to me, lots of people around me were experimenting and like engaging with me as part of their experimenting. And then they would kind of go back to a more normative life path or style of being, whether that's with sexuality or relationship structure. So that's been an interesting thing to kind of look back at people that I've been connected with in my past and realize that I was kind of finding myself and they were trying something wild for a little bit. I don't know how to feel about it. Like some days it feels like cool, chill, and some days it makes me a little sad because I'm just like, oh, I thought we were all going to this quote-unquote weird place together. Um, and I think the sadness is mostly that me feeling like, well, maybe I don't know if I can still connect with them if if this thing that was so important to me was just kind of like a fun experiment for them. Mm -hmm. The last time I was at Folsom, actually, it felt like that, being a non-binary person at some of the play parties and things like that. Getting hit on by someone telling you that they want to touch their first cunt is not hot. <laughs> it's not hot. There's subspace and top space when you're doing BDSM and kink play. And when you're talking about either, you're talking about an altered state of mind where you're high on your body's natural endorphins. At the top, it has to do with being really hyper-focused. Usually you're very tuned into the body movements of whoever you're playing with, and you kind of lose sense of time. Being on bottom, you kind of become one with your body in a different way where a lot of other senses and cognition fall away and you're just in your feelings in a very literal way. Um, either place takes a lot of care to come back from and it takes a lot of trust to go there. So I had a, a lover who we were experimenting with breath play and I had been doing a lot of my studies on safeties and things and so we 
went for it one of the first times. And I remember holding them and watching their face change from being really, like, bright and, like, connected. And then their eyes got wide and they looked like they had just smoked. But it was just off of touch. And so I I pulled back and took care of them and held them and brought them back to themselves. And, you know, it changed the whole course of our day. But it was such a sign of trust and presence between the two of us. That was a really big deal, and I think about it really fondly. Can you describe a little, just for beginners, what breath play is? Mm -hmm. So breath play is a pretty wide spectrum of acts that constrict, control, or in the most extreme sense, stop breathing. Um, It can be something as little as putting your body weight on someone else, and it can be as big as choking. This occasion, I was choking with my hands. The person was sitting in my lap, and they were much shorter than me. So it was really easy for them to sit in my lap and for me to be looking directly in their face and be eye level with them while I held their neck and really, really, really slowly just increasing pressure, increasing pressure and breathing with them until they couldn't. And we were just kind of watching each other's faces. It makes like right here on my face tingle because it's just like so intense and I thought really, really beautiful. And was there any other touch or act during that experience that was other than the breath play? Like, does it also incorporate physical, uh, sexual play? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, with my partner now, who we have a lot more experience, that person and I were really new to playing together, which is part of why them going into subspace was, like, really affecting. But yeah, partners that I have now that are as experienced as I am or more experienced than I am, definitely with breath play, we can be fucking and I can hold their throat and press down on their diaphragm or do things like that. My favorite way now is in the crook of my arm to put someone's like neck right between that crunch of your elbow. That's a tangent. Um. (laughs) It's it's a really worthy tangent because I've had interviewees talk about breath play before, Mm -hmm. but the person didn't have the tools to describe it like you do. So I really appreciate you going into that. Um, And and maybe just for my own education and also for listeners, like, how did you educate yourself about it? Because it seems like a very important education process to do it safely. Yeah, breath play is definitely something you have to do some time and being around other people that know it, not just reading about it, I would definitely say you need to do both. So I did a lot of reading when I was young because it kept coming up in my written smut, right? I would just like love the way they would talk about breath play and people wanting breath play and then wanting to be choked and things like that. And people really joke a lot about choking and sex, but it can be so dangerous. Um, so I would read up about the safety of kinks that were like catching my eye in my written smut. And then when it came time to be in club spaces, That was one of the first kind of workshops that I went to. Um, A lot of the early BDSM clubs that I was members of were very, very education-focused, and it's part of what I was interested in about them. Um, So yeah, I went to workshop classes around breath play and safety with choking. I continuously read up about it. I have books about impact play and like body safety around kink and BDSM. 
The scary part really is that it's trial and error with whoever you're actually playing with. And it takes a lot of communication and a lot of repetition because things like someone's neck being slightly bigger than your hands or smaller and being aware of what pressure someone can or can't take, that all just takes time and experience with who you're playing with and will always be a new learning curve with a new person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I bet it's something you have to kind of like ease into, mm-hmm. ramp, ramp up to. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks for explaining that. You seem like you would be a really good teacher. Thank you. <laughs> Kink and sex ed is definitely like dreams of mine, so. I mean, what's keeping you from doing that professionally? I feel like you could really shine. Thank you. Yeah, it's just the certification, which is something I'm, I'm starting to really research and, and figure out how to get the, the book hours in, you know. best friend in college whose birthday was the day before mine and we threw this big party because it was in the middle of January when everyone is very sad in Chicago because it is very cold um and we had a party called Sparkle Fest uh, where you had to wear the most ridiculous gaudy thing you could physically find or I would not let you in my house (laughs) one year she brought me her friend uh who was a tall muscular long-haired very odd man who like the boy that I lost my hetero virginity too, came up to me and bit me. (laughs) I don't know how people read me right. (laughs) I don't understand how it happens, but they do. And thus started the long flirtation with this person that spent years of going to parties, almost leaving together, kind of being fuck buddy bros, where we're almost always choosing each other and being like, oh wait, I found somebody else tonight. All right, peace bro, have a great one. Finally, finally, one of my last nights in Chicago, during Pride, out at the clubs, going wild, this motherfucker finds me, and it's just like, when you see somebody and you know tonight's the night. Tonight's the night's gonna happen. Uh, So behind Scarlet, that was one of my favorite bars in Chicago. So behind Scarlet, in the alley behind Scarlet, while I am bald-headed and this tall ginger man has like waist-length red hair, we fucked up against a dumpster. Many people stopped and cheered for us. <laughs> and then we high-fived about how nobody probably knew what gender we were afterward. So that was a good time. partner and I run a queer porn company together and 2019 that took us to Atlanta for a conference I really really love sex and kink conference spaces um it's a very nerdy thing for me to say I like going to classes during the day and fucking in public at night and so we were at the play space for that and getting to really use my impact play skills. And when I say that, I like to give a long, varied spanking. Hands, paddles, canes, just rotating between, and my boy is a pain pig. (laughs) And I love that about them. 
Um, so getting to really just like wail on them in public with an appreciative audience while they just like whimper and squirm and turn colors. It was a great time. That was one of my best favorite scenes most recently. So this conference just had a, a room or a space where people could just have at it. Yeah, a lot of those conferences, they'll take over one floor, the you know meeting floor of a hotel, and one space usually is opened up just full of sex and play furniture, cages, spanking benches, crosses, swings, whatever you can think of. What was the name of the conference? A Sex Down South. Mm-hmm. Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I, I would never have thought Atlanta would have that kind of event. Yeah, yeah. Two Black Femmes run it. It's really, really great. They have everything from Tantra and like breathing, yogini kind of focused sexual health stuff to we did a whole session around history and purposes of porn um, and erotica to like support and safety around doing digital sex work. So it's like a huge array of information they do at that conference. And just just for our listeners, how would you describe your porn that you make? Uh, The non-binary porn project that I co-run is called Scum Trust Productions. We do mythical and narrative porn, as well as porn that is demo kink-focused. Cool. I love that. See, you are a teacher. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Just not a traditional I did a lot of things I can look back on now and be like, ooh. But at the time, I was like, this is me. Like, what do you want? It's my house party. I'm going to fuck on everybody's coats if I want to. You put your coat in my room, you know what could happen. So it's like that. <laughs> I can look back now and be like, no, I shouldn't have fucked that boy on all those coats. Or I shouldn't have eaten that girl out instead of go to class in the same building I should have gone. Like, I should have done all these things. But I really, really had such a horny brain (laughs) in high school and college. So I, yeah, I was flagrant. I think my most awkward sex happened while I was in college as a theater student studying uh, costume design in Chicago. Uh, This boy had been bragging a lot, a queer masculine person, just talking a big game to everyone who would listen about the experiences he had and all the people he'd slept with. And I was also a fuckboy at the time. So we did a lot of talking shit to one another about the things we had done. And it was like an open understanding that we were going to fuck. Like everyone knew it was going to happen in the theater school. We had these late night hours at the studio where, you know, most of the school would be there in the designer wing working. And so he would always come find me, come flirt with me, come talk to me. I would come find him. A lot of people hooked up in that building at night. And so one night, 3 a.m., follows me home from the studio. And I'm like, great, finally see if this is what it is. That man laid in my bed like a cold, dead fish. I have never, I have never ridden someone who just looked up at me in shock before. Looked up at me in dead shock. I asked him, is something wrong? He said, you might be too much for me. And I cackle screamed, got off, and told him he could go. (laughs) I was shocked. I was shocked. Uh, Months, months of foreplay 
for nothing. For literally no one got anything. <laughs> so he was all talk. He was 100% all talk. And I felt so awkward where I was like, oh, oh, this like mounting, like, ooh, fervor just sizzled out. He was a great kisser. I was shook. We had made out several times. I was like, I've already vetted you for the energy to be right, I thought. It's like he could dance and he could kiss. I thought we were going to be fine. I was wrong. I was so wrong. <laughs> so that was awkward. That was the most like unsatisfied and kind of like womp womp I felt after sex. My best move. I love a genital in my mouth of any kind, really. Um, I'm very enthusiastic. And you have different methods for different genitals? Well, the best part about oral on a new person is that period of, like, A, getting to really map out what their skin tastes like and getting to hear their reactions to that and then figuring out, like, game plan from there. Like, that is so fucking fun to me. So I always have a great time with that. It's like you're gathering intel. Yes! <laughs> when, what makes you twitch? What makes you gasp? What makes you react and push into me? Like, all of those things. So good. So good. Is there something you do to start off yeah. that might be your go-to that's, that's like, a good, gives you a good read? What would that be? I mean, oral specifically, I usually start off with touching in and, like, coming closer on the insides of thighs. Because I love legs. I love that crease on of people's bodies. It's like that erogenous zone that everyone has, that skin on the, your inner thigh as it gets closer to your groin. It's so sensitive. And I think people have such different reactions to having sensual touch when they're waiting for sexual touch. And playing with that expectation and anticipation is usually like where I start off with. Because <laughs> I love gripping people's like ass, thighs, hips while giving oral and like touching that whole area. Getting someone used to like the grip of my hand there. What about when you, maybe you're exploring somebody's more kink mm -hmm. side? What, what, what might be your progression of boundary pushing? Um, I mean, spanking is definitely where I start with people if they're wanting to see about like play dynamics a lot of time. Um, just because spanking can be so light and playful or it can be like a beating. Um, so yeah, light with hands, playing with rhythm. Hands to like backs of thighs, uh, backs of calves to ask, kind of playing that whole range of the back of the leg. Scratching, light punching, uh, just for different sensations. Warm up the skin first and get someone used to the weight of my hand when it's not trying to do anything, when it's just falling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm kind of improvising here because you are so experienced and you have a very wide range of interests, so. Usually my interviewees don't go there. You know? <laughs> so I'm just trying to like, because sometimes I'll regret not being more investigative. So thanks for um, for humoring me. Yeah, of course. Um, and you're also just so good at explaining it. Thanks. Um, <laughs> past spanking, mm -hmm. and you've described breath play. Mm -hmm. oh, would you ever involve toys or, oh, or yeah. what are those conversations like um, with partners? Like, how do you begin that conversation? I'm definitely like very uh, casual to bro-y about bringing that up where when I'm asking for something, it's very like, 
this dick, you want to you wanna put this in me right now? Like, what, what are you trying to do? Like, <laughs> um, and then with partners, if they're, you know, giving the vibe, like being flirtatious in that way or like let me know they want to fuck, I'm always very like, I think this comes from kink stuff. I'm very quick to be like, so you trying to get penetrated? Do you want to, like, what's the mood? And I have to like hear it out before we start getting getting super into it. Yeah. How do you, do you have those conversations through technology? Are they mostly in person, like in the room before? In the room, if it's not like for a function or for like, oh, we're going to this thing and we want to play together, then it might be like over the text or over the phone. At the beginning stages of a hookup, I really try to have like a full conversation about what we're here for and what we're into for, for that day specifically, yeah. And thankfully, people that I that are attracted to me and that I'm attracted to, like, somehow I've been lucky. I've never shocked a partner with my kink shit. It's like people are already here for it or they knew it was coming, like, or they showed up asking for it. So when, like, primal and aggressive, like, sexual parts of me, like, come out, it usually just excites people more. <laughs> Something that I... I've been grateful people have enjoyed, but I definitely feel a little bit like unaware that it's coming is when I'm really, really enthusiastically fucking somebody, I start growling. Like I don't, I'm not conscious of it. I just, it's just what happens. (laughs) It's pretty challenging being someone who's open about my sexuality and having it perceived that it's not something that anyone else needs to take care with. You know, because I'm so open about it, it's something that other people can be callous about or be expectant about a certain kind of, like, labor and availability from me. Um, It's been challenging to kind of deal with the perception as, like, of, like, toppy or, like, educated kinksters as, like, not being as emotionally interested in others. Even even partners I've had um, when I'm, like, the, the top in our BDSM dynamic not having partners not having an understanding or an awareness of the level of vulnerability that I'm showing, even as the top, even as the person that's quote unquote like doing the hurting as opposed to the person who's like being impacted or hit, I'm still going into a place that's like really sensitive and really raw. And just like I mentioned that, you know, top space and bottom space, you can come out of both and have a drop and have those feelings of like inadequacy and fear of being rejected. And I think that comes from either side of BDSM. And I think that people that I was playing with for a while and even some partners I had didn't have a lot of care about that, didn't have a lot of awareness about that. So, and I didn't know how to name that that was happening for me. I was around 23 to 25 when I broke up with my first kind of serious playmate partner. So that took some really specific like care for myself after that relationship ended to realize that part of the issue was I didn't know how to name or ask for this kind of care I needed in this very like intense play we were doing. Um, whether or not you realize it, a lot of times I think the kinks that you have bump right up against painful or sore parts of your personality, sexuality, history. Um, For some reason, that's just how kinks are made, right? So as much as I love and am really grounded by kink in my sexuality, I acknowledge that when I play with those things, I am playing with some darker parts of myself. And how to take care of myself when that is so central to me has been really hard to, to figure out. And have you uh, discovered a way to ask for it now? 
I've gotten a lot better at knowing what I need after a scene and not just being so sure that I don't need anything. Being able to tell someone I'm playing with, like, okay, what aftercare you need is the bottom, great. Here's the aftercare I need as the top. I was in a relationship with somebody who said they wanted to be my, like, collared bottom. Um, and in kink and BDSM communities, that's, like, a deep sign of commitment to collar someone. Um, and often it's a sign of a higher protocol. When I say higher protocol, I mean um, a more preset and ongoing list of rules or expectations between a top and a bottom. And so I was trying really hard to create a protocol between myself and this person that was beneficial to us both. But at every turn, they were kind of rejecting the whole thing, even though it was something they had asked for. And it affected me so much more than I realized um, to be constantly trying to negotiate this dynamic and constantly being told that they both want it and didn't want it. And their uncertainty really rocked me because I was putting myself out there in a really kind of deep way and trying to like show up in this really intimate way to me that both involved like psychological care and physical care before and after and during hurting them in a consensual way. And so there was a kind of stability I needed us to be having to be doing this kind of play together. And there was a kind of reassurance and, because that's what aftercare really is. It's reassurance physically when you're not fully present. So I know now how to say, like, after a scene, I need this, or for us to play this certain way together, I need this much trust, or all those things. It was something I just had to learn, sadly and <laughs> painfully. But yeah, I had to figure out my boundaries around having those kinds of relationships and not think that because I was interested in being the inflictor, if you will, that meant that my boundaries were less important. I hook up way less now. <laughs> as much as I now hook up on camera for work, uh, I hook up less just uh, randomly than I used to for so many reasons. And part of it is kind of my need for discussion of all these things, all these boundaries, all these needs, all these feelings now before I hook up. Whereas when I was younger, it was just like, great, we made enough eye contact for me to know this is real. <laughs> If I could go back to 15 or 16, I would tell myself to be more patient with myself and others. And that as much as I felt like I had a lot of information, I still didn't know everything about where I was heading. I would tell myself it's okay to, to get attached. I think that was definitely part of what fueled my speed, if you will, <laughs> from high school and college, my like hookup fervor. That it's okay to be attached to people, yeah. When I say that I wouldn't want to be attached to people, I, I genuinely wanted, when I was younger, to just kind of enjoy the moment with people and let them pass out of my life. Because I was so certain at that age that, that no one was going to stay. So why even create longer relationships? Why move with the assumption that that could be part of anything? And at the time, I would have framed it as, like, I'm freeing other people from needing me or me needing anything from them. And I had this whole very like grandiose ideology around it. And I think that at the time, somebody saying something as simple to myself as you're allowed to be attached to people, you're allowed to like create healthy inter interdependence because all of the world is interdependent and it all needs and leans on one another, I think would have affected me a lot.
have any like cold hard advice <laughs> because I was really having a great time. Uh, God, fine. in terms of cold hard facts, uh, use a pillow when you get on your knees. <laughs> Fruit Bowl interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruit Bowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people, indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Most social media platforms often censor any mention or depiction of queer sexuality. As a result, promoting Fruit Bowl is a challenge to say the least, and I rely mostly on word of mouth. Help spread the word about Fruit Bowl by telling your friends or rating and writing a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow Fruit Bowl on Twitter at Fruit Bowl Pod and Instagram at Fruit Bowl Podcast. I'm currently searching for new commercial sponsors for Fruit Bowl. Or maybe you're an individual and you'd like to dedicate an episode to a loved one. Donations are 100% tax-deductible through a fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl receives no direct funding from Northwest Film Forum, only the use of their nonprofit status to receive tax-deductible donations. Contact me if you'd like more information at... Dave at FruitBowlPodcast.com Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. That's me. Dave Pesner was the assistant editor and audio mixer for this episode. This has been a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening. <laughs>